This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians 15. If you were using one of the Bibles provided in the pews, it's page 961 page 961, 1 Corinthians 15, and we're talking today on Easter Sunday about implications of the resurrection. So we're going to look today at verses 12 through 26, and we're going to read those verses. I'm kind of actually going to be all over 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. And so turn there and let's read together verses 12 through 26. This morning, implications of the resurrection. Let's look at God's word uh, together. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ Whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promise of your word. We thank you that our faith is grounded on the truth of a real event that happened in history. And that good news changes everything for those who believe. So work in our hearts now, through the promises of the gospel, to draw us to yourself. And we ask it in the name of our risen Christ. Amen. So imagine that uh, a, a teacher is, is teaching history, and uh, she asks her class, where was the Declaration of Independence signed? And a, a hand shoots up and a student says, well, My family always raised me to believe that it was signed in Dayton, Ohio. And another hand goes up and a student says, well, some believe that it was signed in Austin, Texas, and others believe that it was signed in Santa Fe, New Mexico. But the important thing is where each person believes that it was signed. Still someone else, another student says, You know, it's always given me a warm feeling to believe that the declaration was signed in my little hometown. The subject then switches to math. 
and she asks the class, what is 5 times 25? And a hand shoots up and a student says, it's narrow-minded to believe that there's only one right answer to that. You know, each, each answer is equally valid. Another student says, you know what, I'm a, I'm a free spirit and I just go on my intuition. I think I'll go with 42. Another student says, you know, believing in the unique properties of the number 26 has changed my life. Therefore, I know in my heart that the answer is 26. Well, theologian Michael Horton makes the point that, you know, we don't actually treat life like that. But there are a lot of people who treat issues of faith exactly like that. But our Christian faith is grounded on a real historical event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if that event happened, then it changes everything. If that event did not happen, our whole faith collapses and we're wasting our time here today. That's what Paul was talking about in this text. And in verses 12 through 19, he's talking about what would be the case if Christ wasn't raised. Let's look at that first. So, if Jesus wasn't raised, look at verse 12. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So this is the situation in the Corinthian church. Paul had started that church, and when he started it, he had proclaimed to people that Jesus was raised, and he had also proclaimed to them that one day Christ was coming again as king, and that believers in Jesus were going to be raised. But now he's gone, and some of the people there are beginning to question the second part of that. They want to retain a belief in the resurrection of Christ, and yet not believe in the resurrection of his people. And Paul is writing to them and saying, no, 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 you can't have it like that. It doesn't work like that. He says in verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, the following would be true. First, A, it would mean that Christian proclamation is meaningless. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. You know, we're going around telling people a lie. We're, we're, we're wasting our time and theirs. The word vain here means empty or useless. It means that our, our telling people about Christ, our proclamation is simply useless. B, it would mean that if Jesus wasn't raised, it would mean that Christian faith itself is meaningless. Again, verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Again, at the beginning of verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. See, Christianity is not based on good advice about how to live. Christianity is based on an historical event. If that historical event did not happen, that means that our whole faith is is useless, empty. See, if Jesus wasn't raised, it means that we are bearing false witness about God. Verse 15 
We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So if Jesus wasn't raised, it means that not only are we spreading a lie, it means that we're bringing God into our lie. We're attributing something to God that is not true, misrepresenting him, which is a scary thought. And it gets even scarier because... D, if Jesus wasn't raised, it means that we are still under the condemnation of our sins. Verses 16 and 17. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And when Paul says here, you're still in your sins, he means that you're still under the condemnation of your sins. Your sins are unforgiven. Romans 4 and verse 25 says that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So what that means is that if Jesus wasn't raised, his death did not pay for our sins. Which means we would still be under the condemnation of our sins. E. If Jesus wasn't raised, it means that Christians who die simply perish. Verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. It would mean that they're not with the Lord at all. Don't kid yourself. And then finally, if Jesus wasn't raised, it means that Christians are a deluded, pitiful group of people. Verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Because we're basing our whole lives on a lie. Now occasionally, I'll hear a Christian say, you know what? Even if Christianity weren't true, I would still choose to live a Christian life because I'm so much happier. And I can understand where they're coming from because, you know, certainly... You know, Christian faith and Christian values certainly provide for a more stable, happier life. That's certainly true. But look, I don't want to base my life on a lie. Karl Marx, who's the atheist whose writings formed the basis for communism, once referred to Christianity as the opiate of the masses. In other words, he saw it as just something, something to sort of keep the masses of people docile and in line. Well, listen, I I don't want to live my life in some sort of a drugged up, deluded state, (laughs) basing my life on a lie. I want my life to be based on the truth. Now, last week in verses 1 through 11, we, we saw the eyewitness evidence for the resurrection of Christ. These early Christians were not going around the world and telling people that Jesus was raised and sacrificing their lives, risking all of their lives, in many cases being killed because they had some intuition that perhaps Jesus somehow lived on in their hearts. They were going around the world risking their lives for the resurrection because they had witnessed the resurrected Christ. They had interacted with him. They weren't expecting the resurrection to happen. In the case of the Apostle Paul, he didn't even want it to happen. He was the enemy of the Christian faith. But they encountered the risen Christ. 
and they knew it was true. And they were willing to live for it, and they were willing to die for it. Now, would they have been willing to do that if it were not true? They knew it was true. They knew that Jesus had been raised, and that changes everything. So, if Jesus was raised, it means three things for us. First, it means that his resurrection is the guarantee of our own. Look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, the term first fruits refers to the first part of the harvest that comes in, and it's the guarantee that the remainder of the harvest is coming. And so, Paul says the resurrection of Jesus is like that for his people. His resurrection is the guarantee of our own resurrection when he returns. Not only that. But the first fruits indicated the nature and the quality of the harvest. When people looked at the first fruits they could, of the crop, then they could see, okay, this is what the remainder of the crop is going to be like. So if we want to know what our resurrection bodies are going to be like, then we need to look at the resurrection body of Jesus. So what was his resurrected body like? Well, when you read the four Gospels, this is what you see about his risen body. It was physical, yet transformed. Completely physical. Okay, you could touch him, you could hug him, he ate meals, but it was transformed in that it was immortal. It, it, was, it was no longer subject to death. And that means that, that our resurrected bodies are no longer going to be subject to death either. They're, no, they're not going to be subject to cancer cells or to dementia or to aging. They are not going to be subject to sin or death because our Savior has conquered both. Now, this answers the question that the skeptics were asking in Corinth. You can see their question here in verse 35. Paul says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? But with what kind of body do they come? See, they could not fathom how these fragile, perishable bodies were going to inherit uh, God's kingdom, how they were going to be raised. And Paul's answer is that they're not. <laughs> because when we are raised, we're going to have new bodies. We're going to have utterly transformed bodies. Verses 36 through 38. You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So, listen, farmers don't generally plant mature plants in the ground. They plant seeds. They plant kernels. And God transforms it. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that, that when Christ returns and we get new bodies, then they're going to be changed, which is the point that he makes in verses 51 through 53. He says there, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 
In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. These bodies that we have now are perishable. They have a shelf life. The bodies that we get when Christ returns are going to be imperishable. They're not going to be like the, 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 the fragile, weak bodies that were put into the ground, which is what he says in verses 42 and 43. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Tim Keller tells about a, a grave in Italy. And this grave was covered by a large stone slab. And evidently, when this person was buried hundreds of years ago, an acorn had fallen into the hole in the ground. And as that oak tree grew, it just absolutely, it became a towering tree, and it split that stone slab wide open. What was sown in weakness was raised in power. Now listen, this has huge implications Uh, And not just for our future, but for our present. Because if Jesus Christ walked out of that tomb alive, it means that the, the stones in our lives that seem so immovable can be rolled away. It means that the, the slabs that, that seem to cover our lives, that seem like insurmountable challenges, can be split right into. Ephesians tells us that the power that raised Jesus from the dead lives within us in the power of the Holy Spirit. The, the second thing that we, that we see about this is, it, it, is that if Jesus was raised, it means that our good works for Christ have eternal value. Everything that we do for the Lord will have eternal value. Look at how Paul ends this incredible chapter in in verse 58. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words, everything that you do for the Lord is going to have eternal value. Now, conversely, if Jesus wasn't raised then everything that you did for the Lord is wasted. Look at what he says in in verse 32. Uh, Paul says here, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, many of the early Christians were thrown to wild beasts like lions in the Colosseum. And so Paul's alluding to that here, but probably the beasts that he's referring to in this verse are are, are human beasts, okay? If you read in Acts about what happened to him when he was in Ephesus, there was a riot and and, and he was, you know, he was was beaten and so forth. This was just one of, of, of many things like this that Paul went through. He was so persecuted for his faith. 2 Corinthians 11, uh, he tells us about some of the things that he had been through for Christ. 
far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my my anxiety for all the churches. And listen, if Jesus wasn't raised, it was all in vain. All of that sacrifice, everything that he went through, If Jesus wasn't raised, Paul says, everything that I went through was just useless. You know, he says here in verse 32, we we might as well just live just a a selfish, self-indulgent, hedonistic life. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If Christ wasn't raised. But listen, if Jesus was raised, that means that every act of sacrifice, every good work done for the Lord has eternal value. It it means that, that every bit of time that we gave to serve the Lord is going to be rewarded. It means that every bit of energy that we gave to serve Christ is going to be rewarded and has eternal value. It means that every, every penny that we gave, every, every bit of our resources that we gave to advance the kingdom of God is going to be rewarded and rewarded eternally. Our good works for Christ have eternal value. And it's because of this. Here's a third thing. If Jesus was raised... It means that Christians will live in transformed bodies in a transformed creation. Verses 22 and 23. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now notice here that these incredible promises are for those who are in Christ. Verse 22, in Christ shall all be made alive. Verse 23, those who belong to Christ. These promises are for those who have turned to Jesus in repentance and faith and who are resting and his finished work for them, who have welcomed him into their lives as their Savior and King. It's for those who belong to Christ, he says in verse 23. Listen, do you belong to Christ? <laughs> or do you belong to the first Adam or the second Adam? <laughs> the first Adam brought sin and death. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, conquered sin and death. Which Adam do you belong to? Verse 57, look at what he says here. He says, But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, then his victory is your victory. And your future not only includes a resurrected body, 
But you're going to live in that resurrected body in a totally transformed creation. Romans 8 tells us that, that, the, that the whole creation, which is now groaning in pain, is going to be totally renewed. Verses 24 through 26 tells us about that. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Listen, when the king returns, not only are his people going to get resurrection bodies, but the king is going to destroy everything that is evil. He is coming again as king to judge and totally destroy all that is evil, all that is sinful. The the new creation is going to have no sin, no death. There's going to be no violence. There's going to be no hatred. People are going to live together as they were intended to live together in love, peace, unity. People are going to, to, to worship and serve their creator as they were intended from the very beginning. And it's going to be forever. Now listen, think about the implications of this. In the 2007 film, The Bucket List, Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson play two terminally ill men who set off to get everything on their to-do list done before their deaths, before they kick the bucket. That's where this term bucket list has kind, of, kind of slipped into our, our terminology today in our country. We talk about our bucket list. We're talking about the things that we want to do and see before we die. Well, one of the implications of what we're talking about today is that you don't have to stress out about getting everything done on your bucket list. Okay, because you are going to have eternity in a transformed creation, and it's just going to be a trillion times better, okay, than anything that you can possibly contemplate here. You will miss nothing. Here's another implication it means that the suffering and losses of life are just going to be completely overwhelmed. Look at what he says in in verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. One night, I had a, a nightmare that was... So vivid. I rarely talk about this, but I think it helps us make this point. But it's every parent's worst nightmare. I I, I dreamed that we lost a child. I didn't dream about the circumstances or how it happened or anything. The dream was about our family experiencing events and occasions that we would typically experience with this child in their absence. And it was so incredibly vivid. It was shattering. Absolutely shattering. And it seemed so real. And then I woke up. 
And as the fog cleared away, I realized she's upstairs. And she's sleeping peacefully in her bed. <laughs> and I wanted to do nothing but go upstairs and wake her up and just hug her and tell her how much I loved her. And I wanted to do that for weeks afterward. It was like the experience of thinking that I didn't have her made the experience of having her even more precious. That's sort of like a dim hint, you know, of, of what it's going to be like when, when, when Christ returns. Because we have experienced pain and darkness in our lives, the light of the world is going to shine even brighter when he returns. Death is going to be swallowed up in victory. It's, it's, like, it's like everything, every, pain, every painful loss, every bit of suffering is going to be just sort of bound up in a bundle and just drowned in the sea of God's love. A few years ago, Rick Warren and his wife uh, Kay experienced the, the tragedy of the, the loss of their 27-year-old son who had dealt with mental illness for years and took his own life and about a year after that rick said this he said i've often been asked how have you made it how have you kept going in your pain and i've often replied the answer is easter you see the death and burial and resurrection of jesus happened over three days friday was the day of suffering and pain and agony saturday was the day of doubt and confusion and misery but easter that sunday was a day of hope and joy and victory and here's the fact of life. You will face these three days over and over and over in your lifetime. And when you do, you'll find yourself asking, as I did, three fundamental questions. Number one, what do I do in my days of pain? Two, how do I get through my days of doubt and confusion? Three, how do I get to the days of joy and victory? The answer is Easter. The answer is Easter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have provided the answer, that you are the answer. We thank you for the promises of the gospel. Father, I pray for anyone here um, for whom that has not become real in their life. I pray that you would open the eyes of their heart to respond to the gospel Maybe even during the course of the last few minutes, you've been working in someone's heart to draw them to yourself. Father, I pray that they would turn from trying to do life apart from you and turn to the risen Christ and trust in his finished work, his death for their sins, his resurrection from the dead. The tomb is empty. The, the door is open to new life, eternal life for all who come to you in repentance and faith. Father, I pray that for anyone here today in my hearing who's never turned to Jesus and trusted him, that they would do so today, now, as you call them to yourself. Father, help all of us to, to live our lives acutely aware of the resurrection power of our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about just a relationship with Jesus, if you want to know more about him, if you want to pray with someone, 
um, if, if you've decided to follow Jesus and you've never made that commitment public, then we would invite you to do so um, today as others stand and sing. You can slip out from where you are and we'll be here at the front just to talk with you and pray with you. If God's speaking to you about just being a part of this church family, then we want to um, invite you to come today and we would love to talk with you about that. If you've got just a need for prayer, uh, we're here for you. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.